Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy and hope you learn something too. On today's episode, we're here with Susan Thomas and Jeannie Fakata Selassie, who are representing the Funders for Housing and Opportunity, or FHO. FHO is the funding collaborative that has funded the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and FHO has committed $2.7 million over three years to the campaign. And all of our work, and including you know doing this podcast, is, is powered by their contributions. Uh, FHO is a philanthropic collaborative committed to better life outcomes for the millions of Americans that lack stable housing. Uh, they are funding initiatives like Opportunity Starts at Home, along with several others that are focused on tackling housing affordability. So FHO is bringing together some of the country's leading foundations, Annie E. Casey Foundation, the Gates Foundation, Hilton Foundation, Ford Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, JPB Foundation, Kresge Foundation, Melville Charitable Trust, Oak Foundation, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and Trinity Church Wall Street. So we have with us Susan Thomas, uh, who is the chair of the FHO Collaborative and the senior program officer for Melville Charitable Trust. Uh, Susan handles grant making and knowledge development for key aspects of Melville's strategic plan. Her work is focused on increasing housing affordability and ending chronic homelessness. And Susan also leads the expansion of an outcome measurement system to assess uh, Melville's impact. And she provides support and guidance on the trust's financial and business planning activities. Uh, Prior to joining the trust, Susan was the project officer for Mayor Reed of Atlanta. And while there, she led an initiative to dramatically reduce street homelessness that placed over a thousand homeless men, women, and children into permanent housing. She's the former president of Providence Consulting Group. She's co-chaired an effort for the NE Casey Foundation and the Atlanta Housing Authority to rehouse families through a Hope Six redevelopment project. She's the former VP of Community Investment and Area Development at the United Way of Greater Atlanta. And prior to her nonprofit career, she worked for 15 years in accounting, 
Management Consulting and Strategic Planning. She holds an MBA from the Kellogg School at Northwestern University and a bachelor's from the University of Maryland. And later in the podcast, we'll ask Susan what she hasn't done in her professional <laughs> life. Maybe that'd be easier. Um, and we have the equally impressive Jeannie Fakata Selassie, who is the project director of FHO, and she brings over two decades of experience working in the affordable housing and community development sector. And she most recently served as Senior VP of NeighborWorks America's National Initiatives Division. And there she guided programming and grant making in the areas of real estate development, green and healthy housing, homeownership, foreclosure mitigation, community stabilization, and resident engagement. Previously, Jeannie worked at the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, and she managed the Make It Your Own National Women's Homeownership Campaign at the Macaulay Institute. Jeannie completed her undergraduate work at Seattle University, was an Applied Community and Economic Development Fellow at Illinois State University Stevenson Center, and served in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps in Boston and in D.C. So it's been a great pleasure working with them over the past year. They bring such a wealth of experience and expertise, and I'm excited for them to share that with the audience today. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So let's uh, let's start with the with the basics, uh, Susan. I guess we'll we'll start with you. Um, talk to us about how and why FHO got started. Well, um, at the trust, we focus on uh, preventing and ending homelessness. And uh, despite all the overall decreases in homelessness that we were noticing. We also notice an uptick in high-cost cities, mm-hmm. and we noticed that the disproportionate number of black and brown people experiencing homelessness did not change. Yeah. And, um, and so we looked at the data, um, and we looked at disaggregated data, which was so important mm-hmm. for us to understand mm-hmm. that. Um, we suspected that homelessness was a symptom of multiple failed systems and largely driven by structural racism. And now the looming affordability crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally believe, and now three or four years into this, there is more evidence to support that many of those so-called failed systems were designed to benefit some and were designed to fail others, yeah. namely black and brown people and people who are poor. And so where you live, how you live underpins so many determinants of well-being. And so we knew that we needed to look beyond just um, a crisis response in homelessness, mm-hmm. um, and we looked at the um, at two issues: the issue of affordability and the issue of equity. Um, and we purposefully targeted a small number of foundations whose funding signaled that they understood that link mm-hmm. and the link between safe and stable housing and the advancement of the outcomes that they prioritized. Mm-hmm. And so we asked them to help us think through what a funding collaborative would look like um, with no commitment to join if we actually formed a collaborative, but really just from there, bring their vantage points, bring their experience um, to the table and see what we came up with. And so we met eight times over two years and we agreed to fund a a framework that um, represents all of our shared values and priorities. Great. So you go to them with this sort of idea, what's kind of their reaction after the first conversation? Well, you know, it's all about framing. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, so I think the conversations were all around 
what their view of housing was, mm-hmm. why they had found themselves, even though they hadn't named housing as a priority, funding housing or housing-related issues, yeah. um, what they felt was um, important to advance their outcomes for the populations that they wanted to serve in education or in healthcare, or, mm-hmm. and um, and so there was a common understanding that yeah, housing, um, you know, is related, mm-hmm. but we don't really know how to deal with right. funding housing because yeah. we're not how you know we're right. not housing funders. Yeah. Um, but it was enough of a curiosity to get them to the table mm-hmm. to think about um, how do we want to approach this, and and it was really also timing because many of the the foundations were thinking about how they wanted to deal with funding, mm-hmm. how they wanted to incorporate it into their grant making. So for, I'd say, three of the foundations, they were in the process of doing a strategic planning. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. and, and part of that was understanding how they were going to deal with that. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how that kind of mirrors some of the conversations we have when we approach our multi-sector partners. That Yes, mm-hmm. we understand the link of housing. We know it's related, but we're not quite sure how to pivot to actual housing policy. So it's kind right. of a, it's a similar conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the name itself, um, Funders for Housing and Opportunity, right? It, it certainly implies something that you think collectively that safety and affordable housing is you know foundational for opportunity um, and that outcomes in so many other sectors, education, health, et cetera depend on whether people have access to good housing. So talk to us a little bit about um, those intersections. When we uh, came together and started talking about what each of our priorities were, we understood um, one thing that we all agreed on was that it wasn't about just finding a place for someone to lay their head. It wasn't about just ensuring that there was um, housing that was affordable, which was, of course, important for us. But it was also about making sure that we didn't create conditions that exacerbated um, concentrations of poverty, that um, exacerbated people's isolation from opportunity and amenities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how could we make sure that we were focusing on not just the housing portion, but also place? Place yeah. was very important to us. and. Also, how could we ensure that we were positioning people to advance in the outcomes of the areas that others were concerned about? Mm-hmm. And so we we um, targeted health and education and economic mobility. Mm-hmm. And we felt that those four sectors really um, were very closely linked, yeah. not only in how... Um, uh, I guess, structures were created. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about the history of housing and the history of planned neighborhoods, um, and you think about um, uh, how um, structural racism started, mm-hmm. and it really started with where you lived. Yeah. And based on where you lived, provided access to what opportunities you had or what opportunities you didn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that fed into... Um, what access to quality education you had or didn't have, yeah. what access to quality health care or healthy lifestyle amenities you had yeah. or didn't have. Yeah. Um, and so how to make sure that we looked at the whole picture mm-hmm. of housing and the opportunities that housing provides. Yeah. That's an interesting framing of its affordability and place, right? Mm-hmm. And, and both of those have, have impacts on these other sectors. So if you just look at affordability in and of itself, right, you have... You know, if, if, if the rent is eating up most of your income, well, you have less left over to invest in 
activities and materials that support your child's learning and that impacts mm -hmm. their education. Mm -hmm. uh, you have less to invest in health. So that's just the affordability piece. And then you look at the, the place piece as mm -hmm. well, where where you live depend, you know, that's going to that's gonna predict your access to doctors. It's going to predict your access to whether the school is high performing or not. And so it's affordability and it's place at the it same is. time. So you had mentioned the, the intersections of race here, mm -hmm. uh, which of course cannot be ignored. Talk to us about uh, a little bit more about the prioritization of racial equity within the work mm -hmm. that you all have done. Mm -hmm. We um, so we recognized early on that that uh, was an underlying thread um, that went all went through all of the sectors that we um, cared about, mm -hmm. um, and so we committed to making sure that we put equity in the center of the work that we did. Mm -hmm. So when we first started to develop our framework, we asked PolicyLink to help us uh, be our thought partner. Okay. And they acted as our backbone to make sure that as we thought about what we needed to fund, that we had that lens. Yeah. And, and as we thought about uh, how we could make impact um, and where we needed to make impact and, and, and um, leverage our funding, that we had that lens. Mm -hmm. And it's easier said than done. Yeah, um, we, you know, admittedly, when we developed our framework, and we, we had that in the center, you yeah. know. Uh, when I went back and looked, Jeannie and I went back and looked at our strategies that were developed way before mm -hmm. and recognized that our strategies, although they were well-intended and well-thought-through, sure. um, they didn't name race. Yeah. They didn't name that in our target population. They didn't name it in our outcomes that we were looking for. And if you don't name it, yep. then you can miss it. Right. So we had more universal strategies rather than targeted strategies. Right. Right. And so that whole t um, concept of targeted universalism, that was something that we have recognized we need to be very intentional about. We need yeah. to name it. And, and as we fund, what are we doing to make sure that we're advancing? Yeah. Equitable, um, equitable outcomes. Yeah, interesting. So we'll we'll circle back to some of those those themes that you had already highlighted. But um, wanted to ask about your respective roles within FHO. Um, you know, I shared that your titles with the with the audience. But talk a little bit about your respective roles and what it is that you do within the FHO context. FHO made the strategic decision to primarily be a funding collaborative rather than a funder's affinity group. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we have a very lean staff. Yep. It's yep. just me and one very part-time assistant. You're all they need, really, Jeannie. Come <laughs> No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> They're like, no. But we also have a very active volunteer committee structure so mm -hmm. that we can devote as much of our resources as possible to the grant making. Yeah. And so I play the role of director and facilitator and kind of primary contact with the grantees. Okay. And Susan is the chair of our steering committee and founder of FHO. And she was instrumental and still is in setting the vision for our collaborative. Um, and she's also active in several of our committees um, that work and works very closely with me to maintain forward momentum on mm -hmm. her work. Okay. Why are you passionate about this work? What gets you up every morning and keep pushing forward? My parents exposed me and my two siblings to the concepts of social justice kind of exper experientially yeah. um, very early on um, and exposed us to the, kind of the reality of structural injusti injustices such as homelessness mm -hmm. from a very early age. In the 1980s, people that were experiencing homelessness started to become more visible in cities like Seattle, where I lived. 
and my dad worked at a nonprofit that established emergency emergency shelters and transitional housing okay. so that those people who were living on the streets had safe places to sleep. Yeah. And I spent time volunteering at those homeless shelters and uh, really trying to get to know people experiencing homelessness, to hear their stories, to try and understand the circumstance, circumstances that led to their situations, mm-hmm. and really in really witnessing the impact that homelessness had on their ability to have uh, basic needs met and also Mm -hmm. their opportunities for particularly education and health. And so I think my passion for this work is really grounded in those early experiences of understanding that each person has dignity and that we have a common humanity and that we are responsible for each other as we live in community. And so those convictions have led me to choose a career in housing because I really firmly believe that stable housing is a platform for opportunity. Yeah, well said. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Susan, how about you? Um, this is personal for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I've um, I've known I wanted to be in philanthropy since I was little. Uh, since I was probably about eight or nine, hmm. my dad introduced me to what that meant, and I yeah. thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever heard. Yeah. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, and also, just uh, life circumstances, um, despite being very blessed with a great support network and resources, life can be extremely challenging at times. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine successfully navigating through those circumstances without the access to opportunities um, and resources that I've been blessed with. Um, And I think that the expectations that we place on society or that society places on people who are disadvantaged are completely unrealistic. And it really makes me mad. Um, That's why I do what I do. I can't imagine having to navigate um, life circumstances with no resources, with no support network, with no positive influences around you. Yeah. I think that's unrealistic. Yeah. Um, and then also, uh, in 1961, my mom and my dad filed the first housing discrimination lawsuit in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and they won. Mm-hmm. Cool. And I wasn't born yet, but my sister and brother were very, very small. My sister was just born. Um, but they were really brave, and they they risked my dad's job. Um, they uh, withstood threatening phone calls and vandalism mm. um, with their young family because they really believed that they should live where they wanted to live. Yeah. And when they told us this story, I remember, um, and, and they were showing us the newspaper articles about it, and my sister asked, oh, you won the lawsuit. How much money did you win? <laughs> And my dad said, you didn't win any money. Yeah, it wasn't about that. <laughs> yeah. Right. He said, we won the right to live wherever we wanted to live. And that has just always stuck with me. Mm. And so. they won that for other families. They did. Yeah. 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 So I grew up with those stories yeah. and, um, and with my parents teaching us, you fight for what you believe in, fight for what's right. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, mm-hmm. we always say we walk on the shoulders of giants, yeah. your parents included, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So true. Yeah, that was powerful. Thanks for sharing that, Susan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing too, and Jeannie's crying right now. You can't see it on the podcast. But <laughs> we're, 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 yeah, we're all, no, we're not editing. We're all in tears right now. Um, no, that was that was great. Um, and I think too, a, a thread that I'm hearing in what both you both of you all shared is that you know we have to get past this 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 simplistic notion that where you end up in life is simply a function of how hard you worked. 
right? It's it's a lot more complicated than that. There's a lot of systems and structures that are impacting our ability to get ahead or our inability to get ahead, and we have to we have to come to terms with that as a country and the historical systems and structures that have been put in place. We we have to come to terms yeah. with that if we're going to accomplish what we need to. So, okay, well. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it together. That was powerful. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about the the systems and, and structures piece. Um, and we often talk about you know how housing must be safe, decent, and affordable. And I think we all certainly agree on that. But I want to circle back to a point that you brought up earlier, Susan, which is the issue of location or what you called place, um, where the housing is located, the quality of the neighborhood that the housing is in. Is it a neighborhood of opportunity? Are there access? Uh, is there access, you know, to grocery stores and banks and doctors and transit, or is it segregated in high poverty with lack of access to resources? And you know, we know through recent research from Raj Chetty that neighborhoods matter mm -hmm. a lot in terms of life outcomes. So, talk a little bit more about wh why you have sort of placed the uh, placed place as kind of a co-equal <laughs> pillar to the affordability question as well. Mm -hmm. um, when we were going through our shared values. One thing that we all felt very strongly about was choice and agency. Mm -hmm. And we know because of the structures that are in place, different people have different choices yeah. and available to them. And so if we're thinking of equity, how to level the playing field so that everyone has the choice to live in, in a neighborhood where their child can walk to or being close proximity to a quality school. Mm -hmm. Everyone should have the choice to choose you know, amenities for a healthy lifestyle yeah. and have access to them. Since choice uh, and agency was very important to us, we wanted to think through how can we um, support activities that provide access to people to live in areas that have that opportunity, mm -hmm. but also how can we also think about how do we build opportunity where people live? Mm -hmm. right. Because if you're surrounded in, uh, in a neighborhood that's in, impoverished, mm -hmm. um, that has low performing schools, that is a food desert, that's not close to good jobs, that's, that's, that's not a fair choice. Right. But you desire those amenities, then you have to move. You have no other choice but to move to where those are. And that's unrealistic to expect that everyone wants to move right. um, or has the capacity to move. Right. And why require people to move away from their social networks, from their homes, right. so that they can have the same amenities that others have. Yeah, yeah. And so that's not choice. Right, right. So we think it's both and. It's yeah. building community where people are and where affordable housing is and also the ability for people to access it in yeah. their neighborhoods. Yeah, well said. And that's, I think, too often framed as a, a false choice where it's either mobility to opportunity and that's where we need to focus all our efforts on or we need to focus all our efforts on revitalizing areas of concentrated poverty. Well, the answer is we have to do both and yeah. empower people with real choices. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think yes and is, is the right way to frame it. Um, so let's um, let's circle back a little bit to um, to FHO's priorities. Um, like Opportunity Starts at Home, uh, FHO is specifically focused on rental housing. Uh, and curious uh, why you all made that decision to focus specifically on rental housing. Our framework uh, targets people with the lowest incomes, and that was intentional. 
yeah. um, and marginalized populations. And so we looked at the data. We looked at the disaggregated data. Uh, Joint Centers for Housing Studies at Harvard, Urban Institute, mm-hmm. others have a lot of data out there, particularly tracking um, the shift to from home ownership to rental uh, post-recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the past several years, the average annual increase in renter households is over 900,000 a year mm-hmm. of people who become renters. Yeah. And we also looked at people who were paying more than 50% of their income on rent. And yeah. so over 11 million households pay more than 50% of their income on rent. Almost two-thirds of that number makes less than $15,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, close to 90% of that number has an annual income of less than $30,000 a year. And so that in and of itself lets us know that's a crisis that we need to pay attention to. Right. Because if people are paying more than 50% of their income on rent, their ability to become a homeowner is... Yeah. is not going to happen. Is, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so how can we make sure that people are not rent burdened, that they have the access to opportunity mm-hmm. so that they can, if they aspire to, right. uh, own a home, they're prepared to do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if they you're have the resources. Yeah, if you're a, uh, an initiative focused on the lowest income people, the most vulnerable, you're essentially talking about rental housing at that point. And, right. Yeah. And speaking of vulnerable populations, we also know that people of color are more likely to be low income, yeah. and they're more likely to uh, be uh, renters, mm-hmm. and disproportionately, they're more likely to be cost burdened. Right. Um, and so, when we also looked at the data and we looked at the increase. Uh, since 2001, over 70% of that increase in the number of severely cost burdened households are households of color. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Jeannie, let's let's talk a little bit about FHO and the funding priorities. There's three funding priorities. Um, first is policy advocacy and organizing, supporting national and state level work to advance policy change. and. You know, policy changes, that's where the scale is. It's systemic. Um, you know, and the problem is so big, you can't do it without policy. Uh, this is obviously what Opportunity Starts at Home is focused on. Um, so talk to us about why you've focused on policy change as, as a key lever. Sure. So as Susan mentioned before, our work is rooted in an understanding that certain policies and practices over our nation's history have created segregated communities, which results in deeply unequal access to opportunity over generations. Mm -hmm. Examples are explicit racial zoning, intentionally segregated public housing, redlining, exclusionary deed restrictions, et cetera. And those type of deep structural embedded inequities require a systematic response, which is why we made our first set of investments in policy advocacy and organizing. Mm -hmm. Because we think that policy change and creative thinking at all levels local, regional, state, and national is what will drive large-scale change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, if the audience hasn't read Richard Rothstein's Color right. Law, right, that is, you know, a full book on what on what Jeannie just, just uh, referenced in terms of the history of, of redlining and government involvement uh, and, and segregation. Um, but I think it, it speaks to these are these are um, situations that were created through policy and therefore will necessitate a policy solution that yes there are many important programs that are needed um, but you can't program your way out of it it's going to require a policy solution um, and is the feeling also that you know philanthropy can can do a lot um, in and of itself but that 
it, it can't go all the way. You need a policy solution. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah. yeah. So talk to us about the two other funding strategies um, that are narrative change and scaling what works. Um, talk to us about those two. On narrative change, our entire housing system is set up to value housing as a commodity, hmm. the quality and location of which is a reflection of what you've earned or what you deserve. Yeah. But FHO thinks about it a little differently and believes that housing is a basic need and really integral to individual and societal well-being. And we know it's a long game. But over time, we think it's really important to start to shift the way Americans think about housing to one that values safe, affordable housing as key to our common good mm -hmm. and not just individual advancement, and to see the attendant change in public and political will. And so that's why we want to invest in narrative change. We know it's mm -hmm. a long-term Sure, that's goal, a long game, yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, we got to start sometime. Sure, sure. And then on scaling what works, we are looking to promote cross-sector solutions that demonstrate the intimate connection between housing and education mm -hmm. and housing and health, or all three. Yeah. And we funded a few organizations in this space and are looking now at how we might add support to local collaborative efforts, leveraging their infrastructure and honoring their local perspectives and strategies to demonstrate the important connection between housing and other sectors in ways that could be replicated elsewhere. So those are the those are the three funding priorities. First, policy advocacy and organizing. Two, narrative change. And three, scaling what works. Talk to us about where FHO is uh, headed in the future. Sure. So we currently have 12 funders that are members of FHO, mm -hmm. and we're growing. And as we grow, we will be able to expand the depth and the breadth of our grant making and hopefully become more of a cross-sector focal point for philanthropy around housing stability for renter households. We have a keen interest in learning what works together with the organizations that we fund. Mm -hmm. And we see the organizations that we fund as an ecosystem that may have different strategies or approaches, but all have a contribution to make in alleviating housing instability for the 12 million American households that spend more than half of their income on rent or have no home at all. And we hope to take an adaptive, iterative approach, holding our North Star constant, and that sure. North Star being that all renters, regardless of income, have a safe, stable home in a community with amenities that support better opportunities. Mm -hmm. And as we learn with our grantees and as the environment around us changes, we want our grant making to also be responsive. Yeah. So I, um, I'll share a kind of a, a personal experience that, that I've had, and I want to kind of talk about, uh, you know, the philanthropic community and historically how it's approached the issue of, of housing. And I remember when I was in Dallas and I was at a, a local nonprofit. It was kind of similar to what we were doing at Opportunity Starts at Home, but it was at a, a local level where we were bringing together cross-sector partners, and we really wanted to uh, focus on helping the city of Dallas develop a good housing policy. Dallas never really had a housing policy. Uh, there were some HUD lawsuits. And so now, like, the moment was, okay, Dallas was going to develop a local housing policy. Um, and so it was a bunch of cross-sector folks that had come together, and we were um, trying to, you know, uh, put, our, put our heads together and make recommendations of what a good comprehensive local housing policy would be. Um, unfortunately, we, we found a lot of great funders that would enable our efforts, but I remember it not being particularly easy. I remember it being <laughs> quite hard. Um, and there were just a, a, kind of a few things that, that I remember from those days. Um, one was I was going around and I was asking other colleagues in the housing sector of, you know, how do you go about fundraising in, the, in this space? Um, and they basically, a lot of them said, well, you know, housing isn't really sexy to the philanthropic community. And so you're going to have to tie it into education or health or something else that's sexy because housing in and of itself, the philanthropic community just doesn't find it sexy. So I heard, I heard that story more than, more than a few times. Um, 
And I also heard from, from folks that too, you know, if you're going to talk to a foundation, um, just know that when you go to talk to that foundation, they only do education and health. They don't do housing. And so um, even though, like we talked about earlier, housing is foundational for outcomes in all these other sectors, health and education, um, they were sort of like, well, they don't, they don't deal in that space, they deal in that space. So it's a little bit of a, a silo type issue. So, I mean, these are purely anecdotal experiences that I had. I, I don't know if it's a common story or not. Um, but, I, but I say all that to kind of lead me into this question of whether, whether you all think the philanthropic community has historically paid enough attention to the issue of housing. I think one thing that's particularly problematic is that to develop housing takes years, yeah. right? Three or four years to yeah. actually get a project built. And policy and advocacy work also takes also years. Takes, yeah. And so for some foundations that work on an annual cycle, it's hard to see progress. Mm. And so it's really important up front to understand what the interim markers of progress are. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's particular for housing. Interesting. And before coming to FHO, I worked for nonprofit affordable housing intermediaries. And from that perspective, too, I think there's always more work that can be done, more needs to be met, more good ideas to support, and not enough money to go around. Mm -hmm. And by far, the largest funder of affordable housing in our country is the government. Yep. Philanthropy's contribution is a drop in the bucket by comparison. And philanthropy cannot fill all the gaps if government funding is reduced. Right. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge the really critical role of both the government and private actors here. Um, and I'd say philanthropy has historically paid attention to housing in two primary ways. Okay. First, through its grant making, which often is about services attached to housing. Right, right. And secondly, through its investments in nonprofits at the project level, mm -hmm. or increasingly in recent years more at the organizational level, which I think is very valuable money to have. But with the investments, there's a return expected. Right. But I think if you ask nonprofits across the country, they'll say more of, all of that is needed. So mm -hmm. yes, I think um, there's not enough money to go around and that there are different ways to deploy capital that um, could work for different strategies. I hadn't thought about that before in terms of how you measure sort of interim progress, that housing is, is, a, is a longer game than, than some other areas, right? Like education, you have yearly tests and you can sort of see mm -hmm. are mass scores going up, are they going down? Yeah. There's like, there's a, there's a built-in structure to measure that. Mm -hmm. um, but housing is, you're right, whether it's policy or whether it's, you know, building units, mm -hmm. it's a long game. And so it's mm -hmm. harder to, to kind of measure that. And I, I hadn't thought about that before. Mm -hmm. Susan, did you have any, any thoughts on that? No, I think Jeannie hit it on the head. I think um, one of the reasons that I was attracted to the trust is that they did see the value in investing in the long game. And mm -hmm. I think more and more foundations do, but sure. there is this still appetite for um, crisis response yeah. and quick, feel-good, tangible, we funded that, yeah. that you can point to uh, quickly. And so there's not really the patience mm -hmm. uh, that's needed. Uh, for policy change and uh, and to build structures. Yeah. So is it more of like I don't know if you if you fund a, a food bank, right? You can easily measure how many cans of soup you handed out, and that's a yearly thing that you can calculate, and it's it's quantifiable. Whereas policy is much messier. There's ebbs, there's flows, there's false starts, there's and it doesn't happen incrementally either, right? Policy change right. can happen very, very quickly and very, very big or contract. So it's is that kind of what you're referring yeah. to? Yeah. 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 
Interesting. So kind of going along the, these lines, and again, you know, I'm not I'm not super well versed on the on the history of philanthropy and, and tackling poverty, but one critique that I hear sometimes um, is that generally, not not always, but but generally, um, philanthropy uh, often ends up treating the symptoms of poverty, uh, but it often avoids challenging. The, the structures that produce poverty in the first place. Um, and a while back, and I don't know if you all have read this, but I, I read a book called The Self-Help Myth, How Philanthropy Fails to Alleviate Poverty. And it was uh, by Erica Cole Arenas from UC Davis. Um, and she, it, it kind of, um, it impacted me in just kind of thinking about this, but she uses the case of migrant workers in California to kind of illustrate which, what her point. And she says that, you know, you had this situation in California, and, and many of the foundations were funding kind of individualistic programs for migrant workers that treated symptoms. And she talked about, you know, immunizations and food banks and clothes and self-help faith-based programs. Uh, but they weren't uh, challenging the root causes, the inequitable systems and structures that, that caused these terrible conditions in the first place. Large-scale farming that you know demands low-wage, labor-heavy field work, unregulated working environments, widespread racism, which you talked about earlier, Susan, uh, common pesticide use. So, I mean, do you think that this is a, a fair critique of uh, the philanthropic community? Has it overly focused on treating symptoms, not causes? I think it goes back to what we were just talking about, about the appetite to invest in the long game. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to seeing quick, quick tangible results. Yeah. Um, I think there certainly was a time where the philanthropic community was really focused wholly on um, charitable giving. Yeah. Um, and I, I believe that we've evolved and are still evolving mm-hmm. um, from that point. I think more, I know more and more foundations are understanding that we don't need to just stop the bleeding, we need to prevent the cut. And many more are recognizing the need for systems change and are, are more and more willing to invest in advocacy uh, and, and policy change and mm-hmm. system-like uh, structures. And I think that, uh, well, all of the FHO members, for instance, uh, invest and believe in systems right. change. Right. Uh, and I think that there are many, many more. I know that there are many, many more sure. out there. I do think, however, that there's a growth opportunity for philanthropy um, to think more about the intersections of these systems. Uh, we can be guilty of exacerbating solid approaches yeah. um, to social issues by funding issue-specific programs and initiatives, um, rather than thinking of the systems that intersect to to create those conditions and funding that. And when I think of that, I think of um, a child and I think of, you know, education funders and and, uh, education initiatives focused on the child's school performance. And I think that that performance, we know, um, is dependent on so many different things. Uh, Many things influence that. The child's environment, whether or not they've experienced trauma, if they get three healthy meals a day, um, if if they're moving three or four times a year. Um, and so rather than thinking of each of those situations in isolation, what would it what would happen if we thought about what does that child need to thrive? Mm-hmm. And we funded that. Yeah. What does a neighborhood need to thrive? And we funded that. That combines and intersects all of those systems. Yeah. And we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. 
Yeah, but we're making we're we making are progress. Making, we are. Yeah, yeah. We are. FHO being the we're trying <laughs> a key piece of evidence. That <laughs> yeah, we're, we're moving forward. Um, so I want to ask you all. You 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 know combined. You have such a, a wealth of expertise. I wanted to ask you a few kind of what would be your advice uh, questions. So uh, this is this is for both of you. But um, what advice would you give? And I think you already kind of alluded to it. Um, what advice would you give to other philanthropic groups, um, national, state, local, um, who might be starting to think about how housing intersects with some of their, you know, priority issues that they've already kind of established. Um, what should they do? What should they be thinking about? I think a good place to start is by asking those impacted by housing instability what their experience is in terms mm-hmm. of how they see the connection between mm-hmm. housing and other aspects of their lives and their own access to opportunity. And then move a layer up and ask some of those same questions of existing grantees and community stakeholders. Yeah. And then I look at places like the Joint Center for Housing Studies or the Urban Institute that have data about the intersection. And um, two, you know, for listeners who are interested in learning more about the intersection, I would recommend two websites. The first is yours, Opportunity Starts at Home. <laughs> I was at hoping home, you'd say that. <laughs> which is opportunityhome.org, yeah, yeah. Uh, which has easy to understand fact sheets on housing intersection with criminal justice, with hunger, with civil rights, yeah. with veterans, with economic productivity, and more. And the second place I would recommend is howhousingmatters.org, which mm-hmm. is a clearinghouse for research and reports on housing's connection to opportunity, yeah. specifically around health, education, and economic mobility. Yeah, they do great work. And then I would say um, look at the data. As Susan said before, disaggregate it. See if it tells you anything about those people or places that may be disproportionately impacted, and consider that as, as you build your strategies. Mm-hmm. And I'd say talk to groups like us um, who've thought about this. Um, our funding priorities are not proprietary. Right. You know, we would love to share yeah. them and be delighted to talk with other funders who are interested in um, understanding how we got to our funding priorities and um, working with them to think about theirs. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's a, such a great point of marrying the qualitative and the quantitative, yeah. right? And we all kind of have our, you know, I'm, I'm more of a quantitative person, so I go to the data, but you forget, you got, you got to talk to the folks with lived experience, listen to them, and marry mm-hmm. those two, marry the data and marry the, the qualitative experiences, and, and that gives you a much fuller picture than any any of the, uh, any of them in isolation. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would offer that funders uh, need to get out of their comfort zones. Mm and just start talking to other funders yeah. about housing, about their priorities, about the intersections. Start the conversations. We learn so much from each other. We bring other people in who have expertise in certain areas to help us think through things and inform our thinking. Uh, start those, you know, provide the table where that can happen. Uh, I think a lot of times philanthropy, and actually anyone who's uh, uh, even on the practitioner side who is um, having running an a, a, um, initiative, mm-hmm. stepping out of their comfort zone is, I think it, people think that they're giving up control right. of what they're doing, yeah. control of their message or control of their outcomes or control of whatever, uh, and you're not. And so I think we have to get past the control thing yeah. and really focus on what's what what do we want for this population, not what do we want for our funding, 
what do we want for the population and is our funding delivering that yeah and i think that opens up a whole different world in way of thinking about things yeah well said it's the that old adage of if you're if you're not uncomfortable you're not growing yeah right? and i think i you know i think about that a lot with within our context of opportunity starts at home is that everybody there's a little bit of uncomfort with it right mm-hmm. there's there's non-housing folks that are paying more attention to housing policy and it's not a, their core bread and butter issue and yet they know it's impacting. So they're, you know, they're kind of feeling this space out and then vice versa, right? When, you know, when I'm presenting to a bunch of healthcare folks or, you know, I'm not super comfortable with their vocabulary mm-hmm. and their language and I'm talking to them about housing and the intersections of housing and health and there's a little bit of uncomfort there. So I think that's really good advice of it's it's okay to be uncomfortable. Yeah. That's that's what this intersectionality actually means. Yeah. 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 Um, so we you kind of alluded to it, but I, I wanted to ask you all about your any advice that you would have for practitioners um, in other sectors, right? In housing, health, education. What would be your advice um, to them um, as they as they do the work? I guess I'd have a similar response that yeah. it's important to start by talking with those who are most impacted, and then looking at the research. Mm-hmm. For advocates, especially those working on policy change. The world of affordable housing gets very technical very yeah. quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's full of acronyms and references to the tax code, and it looks different in a rural context than suburban, than urban. Yeah. Um, it could be about rental housing, homeownership. It could be about emergency services or services attached to multifamily buildings. And so it gets there, it's um, diffuse, and it also um, gets complicated and technical yeah. very quickly. Yeah. So I, my advice would be not to be discouraged and don't think that you have to understand it all to be a good advocate. Instead, I would have them link up with groups like Opportunity Starts at Home Mm -hmm. that exists Mm -hmm. to make these connections and um, translate the technical into layman's terms. And once you've established kind of how your sector and housing are interrelated, then I think working to amplify the messages of the existing housing advocates who've been doing this for years. Um, is important. Um, Groups like the National Income Housing Coalition, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the National Alliance to End Homelessness, Mm -hmm. um, to promote their messages within the networks of the other sectors is important. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking about one of the first steering committee meetings we had with all of our different partners, and I think one one of the housing folks used the term LIHTC. And one of the one of the healthcare folks said, "What what what are you talking about? What is LIHTC? What does this mean?" And and actually having those non housing folks around our table has helped us mainstream our messaging, right? And we're able to sort of say, "Oh yeah, that is that is in the weeds. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out a way to mainstream that so that more folks can understand the language that we use, uh, mm-hmm. the language that we use." So having having the the unusual suspects around the table has really helped us in a, in a lot of ways and kind of helped us get out of the weeds from th- from time mm-hmm. to time. Yeah, and I think having the voice of residents at the table is important too because mm-hmm. they also have a different perspective, whereas um, some of our national advocates who are these technical experts kind of know the existing policy and how they want it to change. Yeah. But I think the residents have a vision for what they want that can inform that. Mm-hmm. Um, they mm-hmm. want renter protections. They want their buildings to be well-maintained. Right. Uh, and the national advocates can help them translate their yeah. wants into, into policy yeah. Yeah. language. All right. Well, that's it. We are we're out of time, but uh, this I could I could talk about this all day. Uh, so thank you all for for your time. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your partnership. Thank you for sharing your your expertise and your thoughts with our audience. I think they'll get a lot out of it. Um, so if you want to check out more about um, FHO, you can uh, check out their website housing is opportunity 
org. I would really urge you to, to check it out. They're on uh, the leading edge of some of this work, and uh, um, and again, we're just really uh, pleased to, to have their their partnership along the way. Um, so, Jeannie and Susan, thank you so much for for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.